News Network and its companion show, The Environmental Justice Report, here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, just to let you know, I know it's Thursday. Um, this is the show that should have aired last Sunday, but what can I tell you? Blog Talk Radio was having a cyber, I guess, nervous breakdown. So, again, uh, I couldn't get on air no matter what I did on Sunday. Needless to say, we are going to get serious about looking for a new home for Progressive News Network. All right. My name's Janine Moloff. I am the producer and host of Progressive News Network. And again, it's frequent companion show, the Environmental Justice Report. This week, again, this is delayed. Um, this episode challenges the really ludicrous narrative coming from the Trump camp, this asinine idea that the president, any president, has absolute immunity. We're going to discuss the deluded and tortured semantic argument for absolute presidential immunity from criminal prosecution, okay? You know, the Trump camp isn't just arguing presidential immunity from civil problems. They're saying also from criminal acts as well. It doesn't work that way. Uh, We're going to talk about the idea of absolute presidential immunity, its dubious history, and its danger to democracy itself. You know, in theory, at its most extreme application, under this dubious doctrine, a president, any president, could, you know, call an opponent into the Oval Office, put a gun to their head, pull the trigger, demand the, and then demand the janitor clean up the mess without ever being held criminally accountable. This is the specter of absolute presidential immunity that Donald Trump and his team are demanding, which the Supreme Court could allow. Keep in mind, the Supreme Court is not elected, all right? They have this, and in recent years, when they talk about activist courts, well, the conservatives on this activist court are, they've really gone, you know, haywire. Okay, so that's our big story. Uh, we're, I'm going to put a bit of a mention on how Project 2025 is relying on this garbage theory, but not too much because, again, I've got to go through this a little more. We do have a new initiate into PNN's um, new feature, our deplorable list. We will also have the Jackass of the Week Award, and then we will end with a musical interlude. Now, this time it's not from Randy Rainbow, much as I love him. Um, He slowed down a little bit recently. This one is from the Founders Sing, but it's really funny. So with no further ado, we're going to move on with the show. Okay, so here we go. Kind of bear with me. Keep in mind, this is a live show, all right? Um, If it's pre-recorded, you'll always be told that. But this is a live show, complete with hiccups and difficulties. Uh, And yes, I do have a script in front of me. And by a script, I mean resources that I'm going to be reporting from. But I'm not, it's not like I'm reading off a teleprompter. This is me giving commentary as I report the news. And it's, you know, right here, live, no assistance. So kind of bear with me. All right, so let's move on. So this whole idea of presidential immunity from criminal prosecutions or civil prosecutions, the very theory really does elevate the idea of the president to that of a king. 
Now, there were a couple different articles that really uh, sourced what Judge, Judge Chutkin had to say. One of them was from Alternet, but there's several others as well. I'm looking at the Alternet one. Um, this is a piece that was written by Carl Gibson. This was earlier this, uh, this month on December 2nd. The headline reads, Chutkin slams Trump in latest ruling rejecting immunity argument, quote, no divine right of kings, end quote. So Judge Chutkin issued a 48-page ruling, okay? And I'm going to click onto that right now. Yes, here it is. And it's the United States of America v. Donald J. Trump. It is a criminal action. Um, and I'm trying to find the actual, I'm not going to go through all of this, but you can look it up yourself. It's actually listed in the alternate article, okay? So the link is there. You can look it up yourself. So the 48-page ruling from Judge Chutkin basically denies Donald Trump's motions to dismiss charges against him in the January 6th uh, insurrection case. And according to the article, quote, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin soundly rejected his argument that being a former president shields him from any accountability, end quote. You have to remember, that's what they're mentioning now. While it's true that presidents do enjoy a certain amount of uh, immunity from criminal prosecution while they're in office, that stops once they leave office. With one exception, if they're impeached and convicted, there's a difference, convicted in the Senate. Okay, They're impeached in the House and they're convicted in the Senate. Right. This is why decades ago Richard Nixon had been impeached and he resigned before they had a chance to convict him. And then he got a blanket pardon from Gerald Ford, which I still think was horrible. Okay, None of us get a blanket pardon for anything. Okay, But this is this nonsense here. Now, before this, according to the article, the Trump's attorneys, pushed this uh, motion to totally dismiss the four charges that were brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith, quote, in relation to Trump's alleged plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election. This is what's in front of Judge Chut Tanya Chutkin's court. Now, the article goes on to say, quote, the core of the motion's argument was that Trump was immune given that he was acting in his duties as president to safeguard federal elections. Now, Judge Chutkin didn't buy that. In fact, she wrote, quote, Nothing in the Constitution's text or allocation of government powers requires exempting former presidents from that solemn process of criminal justice. Chutkin went on to write, quote, defendants for your service as commander-in-chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens, end quote. She's right. Okay. You have to realize, in this country, we have a lot of people that call themselves Republicans that really despise democracy, and they idolize the rich and powerful, and they want a king, which is a really bad idea, but that's what they want. Now, Jack Smith also cited the prosecutions of other previous presidents, including Richard Nixon, impeachment trial in the Senate, as well as the civil suit against uh, former President Bill Clinton, 
Jack Smith also cited Trump's own 2021 impeachment trial, quote, in the wake of the January 6th riot. Okay? Smith's filing reads as the following, quote, the implications of the defendant's unbounded immunity theory are startling. It would grant absolute immunity from criminal prosecution to a president who accepts a bribe in exchange for a lucrative government contract for a family member, a president who instructs his FBI director to plant incriminating evidence on a political enemy, a president who orders the National Guard to murder his most prominent critics, or a president who sells nuclear secrets to a foreign adversary, end quote. Yeah, keep in mind, Jack Smith put this in his filing. Okay. Jack Smith has proven that he goes by the book, all right? He has worked for both Democratic and Republican administrations, but he's a go-by-the-book type guy, all right? And I can respect that. Now, Chutkin, the judge, also rejected the Trump team's motion to dismiss based on immunity, but she also rejected Trump's, quote, First Amendment arguments in favor of dismissal. Chutkin wrote, quote, it is well established that the First Amendment does not protect speech that is used as an instrument of a crime, end quote. She nailed it, all right? She absolutely nailed it. And you've got to wonder about these Republicans, these Trumpers that, will basically make excuses for Trump no matter what. He abuses them left and right, and they keep making excuses for him. So you have, I mean, this is my own opinion. You have to wonder, okay, what is he either blackmailing them with or threatening them with? Well, keep in mind, there were two books written by a journalist named Craig Unger. Now, Mr. Unger is um, also the author of the New York Times best-selling uh, book called House of Bush, House of Saud. All right. He's the former editor-in-chief of Boston Magazine. He's written for Vanity Fair and the New Republic. Um, he's a Harvard grad, and he wrote two books about Trump as well. Okay, And I have them right here. Um, one of them is titled American Compromat. Okay. Uh, how the KGB cultivated Donald Trump and related t tales of sex, greed, power, and treachery. Okay. The other book is House of Trump, House of Putin, The Untold Story of Donald Trump and the Russian Mafia. Okay. And each book has really significant uh, documentation to back up everything Craig Unger is saying. Now, proven. Um, What's the word? Excuse me. With such proven documentation linking Donald Trump not only to Putin, but the Russian mafia, you don't have to go very far to kind of ask the question, is Donald Trump and the people that are aiding and abetting him, are they threatening other Republicans into compliance with the threat of an attack on their families or them via the Russian mafia? It is a legitimate question. And it's one that should be asked. Keep in mind, the Russian mafia has murdered other leaders. It's not, there's nothing new here. They do it a variety of ways. And when you're talking about mafias, the Russian mafia is so vicious, it makes the old Italian mafia look like tiddlywinks. All right? So 
let's move on here. This is probably going to be a short show actually today. Piece right here, this, this point is crystal clear, all right? So many of the things that Donald Trump is trying to pull in the courts, again, he has no case. You know, you don't have to look any further than uh, the cases, the case in Colorado, you know, where the Trump team tried to say, well, according to the 14th Amendment, Section 3, the presidency isn't covered under that, you know, that insurrection clause that bars him from holding office ever again. They argued the word office, government office doesn't apply to the president, but it's the office of the presidency. Okay, it's just, it's that semantic hair splitting that is so ludicrous, you know, but lawyers love to engage in it. It's this asinine ad when, you know, Bill Clinton used to joke about how, you know, in law school they argue over what the definition of the word is, is. And the problem with those type of pseudo-logical arguments is this. If you offer a logical argument that in its form, in its structure looks logical, but it's based on a false premise, then it's still a fallacy. It's still a false argument. And that's what the Trump team has been doing. That's what the Heritage Foundation's been doing. Uh, um, excuse me. That's what the Federalist Society's been doing with all these originalist arguments. They have reduced the Constitution to a grocery list. And if your particular freedom isn't on that grocery list, then it doesn't exist. Well, this is nonsense. Okay? But that's what they're doing. So getting back to this idea of you know, uh, of absolute presidential immunity. So then I went and I looked at the idea of executive privilege itself, because that's what it's really relying on. This idea of absolute presidential immunity is based on two things. One, the idea of executive privilege, and two, the idea of this unitary executive, which we're going to talk about in another show. You know, in short, the unitary executive is this nonsense argument that says, well, the president's in charge of the executive branch. In fact, then they argue further and they say, therefore, the president is the executive branch. No, the president isn't. The president is the top of the pyramid of the executive branch. The president is not the executive branch itself. That's nonsense. Because then you've elevated a presidency to that of either a dictator, an emperor, or a king. Wrong. Okay? Now we get to executive privilege. Now I looked at the source was constitution annotated. And this is an overview of executive privilege from Article 2, Section 3, uh, um, 3.41. Okay? So from Article 2, Section 3, it says the following, quote, He shall from time to time give to the Congress information of the State of the Union and recommend it to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient he may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses or either of them, and in case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. He shall receive ambassadors and other public ministers. He shall take care of the laws be faithfully executed, and he shall commission all the officers of the United States, end quote. Now, according to this, it goes on to explain that the doctrine of executive privilege basically defines the authority of the president. And executive privilege allows the president to, quote, withhold documents or information in his possession 
are in the possession of the executive branch from the legislative or judicial branch of the government. It goes on to say, quote, while the Constitution does not expressly confer upon the executive branch any such privilege, the Supreme Court has held that executive privilege derives from the constitutional separation of powers and from a necessary and proper concept respecting the carrying out of the duties of the presidency imposed by the Constitution. Okay? It goes on to say, quote, although there are various and distinct components to executive privilege, the privilege's foundation lies in the proposition that in making judgments and reaching decisions, the president and his advisors must be free to discuss issues candidly, express opinions, and explore opinions without fear that those deliberations will later be made public. Okay. End quote for right now. My question is, why does the president require such privilege merely to discuss? None of us have that privilege. Okay? These politicians are kind of going, well, we don't want these deliberations made public. Why? I mean, if you are suggesting things that are legal and proper, why are you afraid it's going to get out in the public? See, there's too much secrecy. That's a big part of the problem. I can understand that in the midst of a heated debate, you might want to keep deliberations private for a bit, but it should not remain private. The public has the right to know. Now, this Constitution annotated goes on to describe further about executive privilege, quote, conceptually, the doctrine of executive privilege may well reflect different considerations in different factual situations. Congress may seek information within the possession of the president in the course of exercising its investigatory powers. Government prosecutors may seek information in the course of investigating and prosecuting crimes. And private parties may seek information in the possession of the president for use as evidence in either a criminal or civil proceeding. In all these contexts, the courts have generally assessed any asserted privilege by weighing the president's need for confidentiality against the interests of the parties seeking the information. Today, it is apparent that executive privilege is qualified rather than absolute, end quote. We're going to stop right there on that sentence. Today, right now, it is apparent that executive privilege is qualified rather than absolute. Okay, it's dependent upon the situation, in other words. Okay? It goes on to say, quote, for the vast majority of U.S. history, however, the existence and appropriate scope of the privilege was uncertain and nearly untouched by the courts, end quote. So the courts really didn't deal with this, but they should have. You know, throughout our history, there's a certain amount of idol worship when it comes to the president. It just is. It, it, it actually uh, borders on like a religious experience, somebody's running for president. I remember when I was a kid, I'm 64 now, but when I was a kid, the idea of being nominated was like you were called by history, you know, and this, you know, this providence, if you will. And I always thought it was odd. This is a public office. It should not have a religious feel to it. It just shouldn't. It should be accountable and transparent. Okay? We need to get over it. Seriously. Just my opinion. Now, this Constitution annotated goes on to explain how Chief Justice John Marshall, at the very beginning of the court, 
Um, excuse me. Lost my place here. Quote, Chief Justice John Marshall referred to the confidentiality of presidential communications in Marbury v. Madison and during the treason trial of former Vice President Aaron Burr. But in neither instance was Marshall forced to definitively decide whether such a presidential privilege existed and if so, in what form. And, end quote. So this is this has been up in the air for a long time. And when the courts look at certain powers and privileges, you know, just like other freedoms, like free to free speech, you have to, you know, for instance, if somebody is inciting a violent riot that results in a violent riot, riot that, excuse me, that results in a violent riot, you have to look at their free speech rights and weigh it against the fact that this other person or persons had a right not to be attacked. You know, no right is absolute. It just isn't. And once again, we have elevated our presidents like a religious experience to they, they're definitely celebrities and they shouldn't be. This is an office of responsibility and it should require responsible, thoughtful people that actually have, I can hear the laughing now, that actually have scruples and integrity and ethics and that think deeply about these things. It should not be based on celebrity. I mean, think of what we've done. We, they put Donald Trump in office and you look at it, you know, I, I hear people still I know I'm kind of going off topic a little bit, but I hear people still talk about, well, he voted for him because of his business acumen. What business acumen? He sold his name. And each time he failed, Daddy Kin put an infusion of new money in to basically rescue little Donald. He went bankrupt six times that I know of. And some people say, well, he's taking advantage of the tax codes. No, what he's done is he's basically committed criminal acts by lying to the court, you know. The fact is he inflated the price, he had his team inflate the prices of his properties to get better loans that he never paid back, actually. But then he de had them deflate the same property for tax purposes. Newsflash, condominiums and high-rise buildings that are completed don't suddenly grow overnight from 10,000 square feet to 30,000 square feet. It doesn't work that way. Okay. So you've got this person here who, for all practical purposes, is a failure as a business person. He's committed multiple criminal acts. He wasn't convicted, but the evidence is there. He's a crook. And then his other claim to fame, which is why people outside of New York knew who he was, he was a reality TV show host. Think about that for a minute. It takes zero talent and no ability to do reality TV. Reality TV, first of all, isn't real. It's voyeurism. That's all it is. Voyeurism and gossip. And, and, and that's why it attracts people. It's like, you know, you, you see an accident on the highway and you have to stop to look. That's, that's the phenomenon right there. So we put a reality TV star, if you will, in the presidency. Talk about stupid. Good Lord. So getting back to this, I had to have my rant. When it comes to executive privilege, okay, this document goes on to say, um, 
I'm going to skip a little bit here. Before the Nixon era, exec, quote, executive privileges contours were defined, if at all, by historical practice and the actions and interpretations of Congress and the President. And with little further explication coming from the Supreme Court since the Nixon era remains the defining era of judicial consideration of the privilege. Okay? This document says, the, quote, the judiciary's involvement in addressing the privilege's use in resisting disclosure in the face of either judicial or legislative subpoenas did not begin in earnest until the 1970s and, you know, the administration of Richard Nixon. Keep in mind, Richard Nixon has an enemies list. I was in high school at the time. I remember because when you in the high school yearbook, what is your, your big ambition in life? I said to be number one on the Nixon enemies list. My mother nearly had a fit. Um, but I meant it. The idea that a president has an enemies list of American citizens is beyond obscene. It is anti-American, anti-democratic. Okay? So... You know, this piece goes on to say, quote, this lack of judicial involvement is most pronounced in the context of executive privilege disputes between Congress and the President. The Supreme Court has never directly considered the application of executive privilege in the context of a congressional investigation. Um, you know, it says lower federal court decisions are similarly scarce. The only appellate level decision to reach the merits of an executive privilege dispute between Congress and a sitting president occurred nearly 50 years ago. And finally, in light of this near judicial vacuum, the historical actions and interpretations of the branches necessarily play a significant role in establishing the meaning of executive privilege, end quote. This is basically saying that because the court never really dealt with it, oh well, it can't be an oh well. Okay, the concept of executive privilege for the purpose of withholding documents was so that all these professionals would feel uh, safe, I guess, if you will, legally safe to have an open and vigorous discussion. But once the discussion's done, you don't need that level of secrecy at all. You know, I've worked in professional capacity, and no, no other profession does this. Okay? Even lawyers, when you go to court, and let's say you're facing either criminal charges or civil charges, Lawyers have this thing called, have this thing called um, discovery, where each team has to share their evidence and decide what is legitimate to present, present what isn't. There's none of this secrecy crap. So why are we allowing presidents to do it? Seriously. All right, so I have another article here before we move on. This is from Center for American Progress. The author is Katrina Mulligan and Aminata Diallo. Uh, Aminata, uh, so the main author is Katrina Mulligan. She is the Managing Director for National Security and International Policy at the Center for American Progress. Aminata Diallo is an intern for National Security and International Policy at the Center. Okay. This goes back a few years. This is during the Trump administration. This book published in October of 2019. The headline is, The Executive Privilege is Far from Absolute. There are limits on the President's ability to withhold information from Congress. 
Okay? And and there are. Okay? So let's scooch down here a little bit. Let's this article talks about what executive privilege does and does not protect. This is in their opinion. Okay? Quote, the executive privilege exists to protect the president's legitimate interest in, at least under some circumstances, preserving the confidentiality of internal communications that is essential to effective consultation, end quote. The key phrase here is these are communications that are essential to effective consultation. It begs the question, once the consultation is done and it's settled, why should these documents, why should these communications remain confidential then to only the president and his or her team? They should not to expect Congress to vote on a program that the president wants when Congress isn't allowed to even view what it's about is nonsense. And it isn't just Donald Trump. During the Obama administration, the same crap went on when it had to deal with multilateral trade agreements where members of Congress, both parties, were not allowed to view what the trade rep had negotiated. The lobbyists wrote the agreement, mind you, lobbyist with a clear conflict of interest because they're being paid by these corporations. But members of Congress court, and I remember because I interviewed him, then U.S. Rep. Alan Grayson, Democrat of his own party, had to basically fight the Obama administration and demand access to, you know, basically the documents that they were being asked to write a blank check for to vote on this trade agreement. And finally, after much lobbying, Grace and a few others were allowed to go into the SCIF, which is this little private room that's swept for bugs and everything, and they were allowed 30 minutes with this couple thousand page document. They weren't allowed any phones, cameras, they weren't allowed to make copies. 30 minutes with a little piece of scratch paper and a pencil. I kid you not. So this is something that needs to be fixed. Too many presidents have used this to get away with crap. And it needs to stop. And the public has a right to know also. That's the other thing. The public has a right to know what Congress and the president are doing in our name, especially when it comes to things like trade agreements, for instance, that screw over the average worker. They just do. So we have a major problem with this, and I've always had a problem with the concept of executive privilege. To me, it sounds totally undemocratic. I mean, why do you need executive privilege that grants a special privilege to keep, you know, so that Congress doesn't know what the president's doing and his team, and the people don't know? Why do you need that? I mean, once the discussions are done, the public has a right to know what is being done in their names just do. Not have, for instance, trade agreements signed off on and we find out about it after the fact and then we're screwed. This does not work. It is not representative of the public at all. And this is not a Republican issue. This isn't a Democratic issue. This is a democracy issue. This is an issue of accountability and transparency and the idea that no one is above the law, including the president, period really that simple. So presidents have been able to withhold information from Congress um, on other 
thing. So for instance, um, there is a right to protect confidentiality from disclosing to Congress. Um, for instance, if the disclosure is considered to have, will harm national security or quote, impede sensitive negotiations. Um, besides the idea of having their, advice, their advisors give effective counsel. You know, I'm really tired of the effective counsel excuse because as a professional person in two fields, one in journalism but also in education, I wasn't allowed that. I was held accountable for what I said and what I wrote, period. That just is the way it is. Okay, this is nonsense. Um, I can see protecting national security or sensitive negotiations, but then there should be some sort of um, procedure to clue Congress in and then eventually let the public know. There just should. Now, the article's authors here, they did quote President Eisenhower from 1955. And Eisenhower in 1955 said the following regarding executive privilege, quote, there is no business that could be run if there would be exposed every single thought that an advisor might have because in the process of reaching an agreed position, there are many, many conflicting opinions to be brought together. And if any commander is going to get the free, unprejudiced opinions of his subordinates, he had better protect what they have to say to him on a confidential basis, end quote. This may be reality in professional circles, but also speaks to professional cowardice. I'm just going to say it. You know, if you're a legitimate professional person in any field, you know, you know you're going to be held accountable, period. And, you know, I was in special education. I was a speech-language pathologist for over 30 years. And I can tell you right now, the first thing we learned that was drilled into our heads was accountability. And I can honestly say, at no time did I ever worry that giving my honest opinion based on facts, uh, I didn't worry about that. Okay, I did, I did my professional duty. The problem with some of these people is they want the power but they don't want to be held accountable. They don't want the responsibility, all right? They want to be able to do what they want without any consequences. This is nonsense. That's the whole concept of privilege. You know, I believe in equal rights for all, privilege for none, period. But this article goes on to say that executive privilege is not absolute and that it doesn't protect the president, quote, when he is acting in his personal capacity. Okay, end quote. So the privilege just protects deliberations that relate to presidential duties, but also that it doesn't protect communications that deal with personal matters, like an incumbent president's advisor's advisor's communications related to political campaign work, for instance, which means that Steve Bannon's claim that he can claim executive privilege while he was working on a campaign, eh, wrong, doesn't work that way. Uh, this article goes on to say, quote, the executive privilege does not protect information related to presidential decisions once they have been made, end quote. It only exists during deliberation, in other words. Once the decision's been made, boom. Unfortunately, those that push this idea of presidential uh, executive privilege have decided that, no, the public doesn't have a right to know. Okay. So it goes on to say then, 
Therefore, quote, if communications relate to a decision the president has made or direct federal employees to undertake activities on the president's behalf, the executive privilege does not apply. It goes on to say, quote, the executive privilege does not protect communications related to the current or future commission of a crime. Boom. That's it. It also goes on to say that communications that might relate to a potential crime or potential violation of law are also not protected from disclosure under the privilege. It goes on to say, the, quote, the executive privilege does not protect communications that are never received by the president or his office. Okay? It goes on to say, quote, communications between the president's agents such as text messages between parties that do not include the president or White House officials are not protected by the privilege. It also says the executive privilege, quote, cannot provide absolute immunity to congressional subpoenas. Okay? And it goes on to explain that Article I of the Constitution does give Congress what they call, quote, the power of inquiry. And that carries with it, quote, the process to enforce it, end quote. So as you can see, executive privilege is not what the Trump team is claiming it to be at all. All right, so now I'm going to take a little break here. I'll be back in a second. going to go to some major hypocrisy. You know, as you know, two groups, mainly the Heritage Foundation as well as um, the uh, Federal Society have been pushing this idea of presidential dictatorship, uh, absolute president immunity from prosecution, as well as civil prosecutions, and so on and so forth. So I like to point out their hypocrisy. So back in 2012, the Heritage Foundation um, published a piece. This is the same Heritage Foundation now pushing for presidential dictatorship with Project 2025. But back in 2012, when a black man was president, namely Barack Obama, they were against presidential immunity. Isn't this delightful? I'm being sarcastic, okay? And this is straight from their own, you know, their own uh, website. The irony here is too funny. So this is a piece that was written by Todd F. Gaziano, uh, who is also who also was the former director of the Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, formerly the director of the Mies Center. Okay, so Republican. This was published June 22, 2012, and the headline is ironically titled "Executive Privilege Can't Shield Wrongdoing." Can you hear the mic drop? Seriously, good God. And it, it's such BS. It, it's, it's not a long article at all, but I'm going to go straight from it because I don't want those jackasses at Heritage Foundation to say I misquoted them. Quote, 
As a strong defender of executive power when properly exercised and executive privilege when properly invoked, I am concerned when claims of executive power or privilege are abused for any reason, especially if they are invoked to shield potential wrongdoing, end quote. It's too laughable, okay? This, you know, the reason, I'm going to stop here for a second. The reason why hypocrisy doesn't bother the GOP of Trump is because, one, they know they're lying. Two, they don't care. They just want a get-out-of-jail-free card for any crimes they may commit, period. And they're fine with, you know, invoking the law against somebody they don't like. Again, this was 2012, and he's going all high and mighty because the president was a black man, namely President Obama. But they're not racist. No, not at all. All righty. The irony is too delicious. Okay. So this article goes on to say, quote, um, I lost my place. I'm sorry. Quote, in addition to shielding the wrongdoing, it jeopardizes the very executive power that the president is entrusted with when Congress and the courts react as they did in the post-Watergate era to the abuse of power, end quote. Well, yeah, that's true. Okay, but notice what's going on here. This is about the whole concept of privilege. Privilege is the antithesis of equal rights. just is. You can't have equal rights you can't have due process and fair, ap- fair and just application of the rule of law if, you have, if anyone has privilege. It just doesn't work that way. Okay? So this is dealing with they're going after uh, Barack Obama's attorney general at that time was Eric Holder. Quote, the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform is rightfully investigating the fast and furious debacle in which the administration allowed thousands of guns to flow across the Mexican border, resulting in the death of one U.S. Border Patrol agent and at least 200 Mexican citizens, according to the Mexican Attorney General. Okay. Um, The most glaring violation of executive power in that investigation before now was the refusal of the Department of Justice to turn over 1,300 pages of documents subpoenaed by the committee without even an assertion of executive privilege. Attorney General Eric Holder simply refused on his own initiative in a blatant act of stonewalling, end quote. Now, notice what's happening here. They're angry that guns float across the border. One Border Patrol agent died. Okay. This is the same party that is fine with any nut job getting an AR-15 and high-velocity bullets. We have more mass shootings now than we've ever had. Notice the discrepancy here, because it's not their guy. Okay, so there's a few more paragraphs here. Um, So this goes on to explain how Holder asked President Obama to invoke executive privilege so that he didn't have to give over, he didn't have to give over these 1,300 pages of documents. Um, And then they go on to say, you know, even if, properly involved with their phrase. The Supreme Court made it clear that executive privilege is not absolute. Got to read that sentence again. Quote, even if properly involved, the Supreme Court has made clear that executive privilege is not absolute. End quote. This is the Heritage Foundation. Back in 2012 saying clearly, executive privilege is not absolute. 
Now, the Heritage Foundation, which is sponsoring Project 2025, is saying the exact opposite. Why the discrepancy? Because they want a presidential dictator, nothing more. The Heritage Foundation under Project 2025 has no respect for rule of law. It is a fraud. Okay? So this guy lists different reasons as to why, you know, Holder was wrong, and I'm not going to get into the, you know, the, the, the details of the case. I got to the part that was important. Um, this is really what's happened here, okay? Heritage Foundation can't shield itself from that one. All right, so we're going to go to one more thing here. And this is um, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, now on the Supreme Court, had an earlier um, video where he allegedly decimated absolute presidential immunity, was against it. Okay? Give me a second here. Yeah, this is a piece that was also an alternate. I'm going to actually play the video so you can listen to it. And it was written by Alex Henderson. Um, this was written December 13, 2023, so it's recent. But the headline is, Why Brett Kavanaugh Already Shot Down Trump's Immunity from Prosecution Claim Two Decades Ago. We're going to go to that, to that video you can listen. Give me a second here. Take a minute. The job of president is far more difficult than we even imagine. It makes me being a member of Congress or Supreme Court justice even look almost easy by comparison. Uh, the decisions are... I'm going to stop here for a minute. This appearance by Brett Kavanaugh, and I'm going to play it from the beginning again, was an appearance on October 17, 2008 at the University of Minnesota Law School for the Minnesota Law Review. Okay? So, again... Obama's in office. Look at the hypocrisy. We're going to start over. Give me a second. Here we go. The job of president is far more difficult than we even imagine. It makes me being a member of Congress or Supreme Court justice even look almost easy by comparison. Uh, the decisions are incredibly difficult. The pressure is relentless. Uh, the problems never go away. There's no recess. There's no summer break. There's you're always on. Um, and at the end of the day, only one person is responsible for those decisions. You don't have eight other colleagues like you do on the Supreme Court or 99 other colleagues like you do in the Senate or 434 other colleagues as in the House of Representatives. As president, and I really came to understand this, it's you and only you. There's no one else to point to when things go wrong. And there's no one else who ultimately can make the final decision. We revere the presidency in this country, and even then, though, I think we, we grossly underestimate how difficult it is. There's a great book at the end of the Clinton presidency by John Harris, who's a Washington Post reporter, about President Clinton called their survivor. And I think uh, that term really, after being staff secretary, captures well what the presidency entails, I think, for, for any president in this day and age. So having seen how difficult the job is, I think it's important that we think about uh, 
how we can structure the system so that the president is able to focus on his never-ending tasks with as few distractions as possible. And with that in mind, it seems to me that it's one, one first proposal I'd have is that Congress take action to alter the results in the Clinton versus Jones case. The, the Clinton versus Jones case, as you'll recall, allowed a civil suit to proceed against the president while he's in office. And the result the court reached in that case, the Supreme Court, may well have been the right result as a matter of constitutional law. That's really not for me to say. But the court indicated that Congress could always provide for a temporary deferral of civil suits against the president. And I think there's no good reason that, that Congress should not do so. To be sure, this may not seem like an urgent issue, but it's in separation of powers, it's important to see around the corner, to see what the issues that could arise in the future are. And in my judgment, it would make a, a good deal of sense for Congress to make sure that a situation that uh, occurred in 1998 with the Clinton versus Jones case and then the resulting criminal investigation doesn't occur again while a, while a president is in office. If you think about it during 1998, that's when uh, President Clinton ordered in August uh, attacks on Osama bin Laden in August of 1998, and it was just a couple days, he did that just a couple days after his grand jury testimony about the Monica Lewinsky matter. When you think back on that, uh, and you think about the country's priorities, and you think what prompted that in the first place, it really makes sense to make sure as a country that we give our president as much room as possible to operate free from the usual burdens of the citizenry. Okay, so to me, it sounds like you talked in circles. Let's look at the article. That's kind of when you kind of miss something there. Okay, so let's look at this. Okay. Um, so Kavanaugh in 1998 wrote, quote, Congress should establish that the president can be indicted only after he leaves office voluntarily or is impeached by the House of Representatives and convicted and removed by the Senate. Okay? So, um, this was based on an MSNBC report with Lawrence O'Donnell. Okay? Um, okay, so... O'Donnell told viewers that page 16, okay, I just lost my place. I'm sorry, folks. Page 16 of the Brett, of Brett Kavanaugh's article that was in the Minnesota Law Review, quote, removes all doubt that, about what Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh actually thinks. Okay, so let's look at that. I'm trouble getting it today. In 1998, Kavanaugh wrote this 38-page article, I stand corrected, for the Georgetown Law Journal. It had 167 footnotes. And the title, he wrote this before he became a SCOTUS justice, is The President and the Independent Counsel. Okay? And I'm looking at it now. It is really in-depth. Um, 1998. Let's see if I can go down to the end of it. Sorry, folks. Conclusion. 
quote, outside federal prosecutors are here to stay. They have existed at least since President Grant's administration. As we have seen in the last 25 uh, years, the system of outside prosecutors can make an extraordinary difference in how our nation is governed. As Justice Scalia stated, the debate over a special counsel is about power, that is, quote, the allocation of power among Congress, the President, and the courts in such fashion as to preserve the equilibrium the Congress are to establish, end quote. The fun- and Kavanaugh goes on to say, quote, the fundamental flaw with the current independent counsel statute is that it creates almost by definition a scenario whereby the president and the independent counsel are adversaries. From that basic mistake flows most of the other problems that critics identify in the statute. Clarifying the role of the president in the manner proposed in this article would expedite, depoliticize, and enhance the credibility and effectiveness of special counsel investigations and ensure that Congress alone is directly responsible for overseeing the conduct of the president of the United States and determining in the first instance, whether his conduct warrants a public sanction. Okay, end quote. So what I take away from this, even though I haven't read the whole thing yet, is that the president doesn't have absolute immunity. Congress can put him in check. But the Trump team's arguing that the president does have absolute immunity and nobody can criticize them or hold them accountable, including the Congress. That's the Trump claim. And so you've got this schism because Kavanaugh was fine with Congress exercising its muscle against a Democratic president. But now, what's going to happen with Trump when he's pushing all these insane narratives? Okay? So we're going to have more about this. Um, What can I tell you? All right. It's just really, you know, outrageous here. All right, let's move on. I'm going to take a little break here while I get ready for the last part of the show. Okay, and we're back. Okay. So now we're going to move on now to our deplorable club. And then we're going to, after that, this is a new thing here, then we're going to move on to our jackass of the week and then our musical ditty. So let's move on. You know, Hillary Clinton made the idea of deplorable um Kind of a thing, all right? Frankly, I think she was being too polite. All right, call them out for the Nazis. They are, but she said deplorables. So we're going to have our deplorable club. First, let's get our evil music going. Give me a second here. Give it a second. Welcome to TNN's deplorable club. Oh, who is our new deplorable this week? There's so many. The Republicans have truly built up the tension. Who is the recipient of our deplorable award this week? And we're going to find out. 
Okay, let's find out. So our deplorable club this week is presidential candidate for the GOP, Nikki Haley. Why Nikki Haley? You know, Nikki Haley has been pushed uh, by the corporate media as being, you know, Trump-like. She's moderate. She's a nice lady. You know, she doesn't yell. That doesn't mean she's a good person. Okay, it just means her demeanor is not as unacceptable. Okay, so there was a piece, I, I, I like supporting local journalism from the Des Moines Register by Stephen Gruber Miller. Nikki Haley says Trump accusing immigrants of, quote, poisoning the blood of U.S. is not helpful. Okay, so Donald Trump has been basically uh, channeling his inner neo-Nazi. He called all of us that aren't white enough, Christian enough, straight enough, you know, um, you know, Nazi enough. He's called us all vermin. Okay, I know I've been calling I've been calling my U.S. senators, their Republicans, and thanking them. I didn't know I was vermin, and had they not mentioned, I never would have known. They clarified the issue beautifully. Obviously, I'm being incredibly sarcastic, but I believe some people think that that me using that term vermin is, you know, just going too far. It's like, no, I believe in throwing their ugliness in their faces, okay? It's just like the N-word. It doesn't become a weapon unless I allow it to be. No, I'm throwing vermin back in their faces. But then recently, you know, Trump basically said, quote, the following quote in a speech of, quote, this is Donald, I'll try and imitate him, quote, it's true, they're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They, didn't li- they don't like that I said that, and I never read Mein Kampf. Oh, and, and Hitler said that in a much different way, end quote. Okay. Now, this is Trump telling supporters at uh, an Iowa campaign event, and he's repeated it since. Blood poisoning, the idea of poisoning our blood, comes straight from Mein Kampf, straight from Adolf Hitler. Nikki Haley is not an idiot. She's actually the daughter of immigrants. She's a person of color herself. But it just shows when you see people of color sidling on to the GOP of Trump, they sold out. Okay? They just sold out. That's it. They're not representative of their community at all. Okay? So here, Nikki Haley, she's a former United Nations ambassador. And when she was asked about this, these Nazi, this Nazi terminology, she said that the president's comments are, quote, not constructive, not necessary, and not helpful. Okay. Speaking as a woman who is a Jew who lost family in the Holocaust, to, to water it down and say it's not helpful and not constructive, that's like something you tell a two-year-old or a 10-year-old even, when they've maybe done something that's inadvisable. It is totally downplayed when you're looking at Donald Trump using quotes from Adolf Hitler, the man responsible. Okay. Hitler led and was responsible for a genocide of 11 million people, 6 million were Jews. And all Nikki Haley can say is it's not helpful? when he incites the crowd using Nazi terminology? Honey, if that doesn't make her deplorable, nothing will. Talk about weak sauce. Unbelievable. So our deplorable, number one, is Nikki Haley. Okay? 
Now we're going to go back again. We'll see if I can get a set of music this time. We have two deplorables this week. Okay. There we go. There we go. Our second deplorable monster of the week. I just love doing that. Comes from Missouri. And it is Representative Sarah Unsicker of Missouri. Now, this woman is a true nut job. I'm just going to say, okay, this I have an article from the Riverfront Times this time. Now, Unsicker was running in the Democratic primary for the Missouri Attorney General's office. And she is, um, I believe at the time she was running, uh, she had two opponents. One was Will Scharf, who is... Jewish and a Republican. The other one is Elad Gross, who is also Jewish and a Democrat. And Unsicker up till now actually had a pretty good reputation. I mean, she worked uh, to improve things for children with disabilities and so on. But on this one, she lost her freaking mind. According to the Riverfront Times, um, this was she was outed on December 5th the, um, by Sarah Sensky of the, of the Riverfront Times. The headline is, Democratic Missouri Rep Proudly Shares Lemonade with Alt-Right Troll. This made national news, actually. She shared, I think it was basil lemonade with um, Charles Johnson, I think is the guy's name. Okay. Now, yeah, with Charles Johnson. Um, Now, throughout the media, Charles Johnson was called an alt-right troll. And this is from Unsicker's own Twitter account. I still call it Twitter, even though it's X. Um, on December 4th, Unsicker wrote, people here don't like that I'm friends with at Eric Garland, who's another um, neo-Nazi. They really don't like that we meet with at Johnson Thought One over basil lemonade in Webster Grove yesterday. I'm an adult and capable of choosing my friendships. And she's got a big old smile on her face, okay? Now, both Eric Garland and, um, excuse me, both Eric Garland and Charles Johnson have been reported by the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League as not just being alt-right. You know, they are, they are neo-Nazis, make no mistake about it. And Charles Johnson, to call him an alt-right troll, the mainstream media whittled that down too. Charles Johnson is particularly notorious. If anything, he did some major fundraising online for fellow neo-Nazi Andrew Anglin. Anglin had, was facing prosecution because he had organized a lynch mob against Jewish realtor Tanya Gersh, I believe, in a small town in Montana. And, um, you know, again, Charles Johnson is a major figure in the neo-Nazi white supremacist movement. To call him an alt-right troll is, is silly. He's far worse than that. Now, I was able to get this information in five minutes, all right? And I don't have a staff like Sarah Unsicker has. So to give you a further explanation here, uh, explanation that is, Charles Johnson is so vile, according to this article, that, quote, um, according to this article, quote, Charles Johnson, quote, an alt-right political activist so radioactive, even Congressman Matt Gates has disavowed his beliefs. And that is as documented by... Politico. It's right there, by Politico. Um, 
quote, among many other things, Johnson has denied the Holocaust and admitted to repeatedly using the N-word on Twitter, although he claimed it was to study the site's algorithms, according to Politico. Closer to home for Unsicker, Johnson also sued unsuccessfully to have Michael Brown's juvenile records released and was banned from Twitter back in the pre-Elon days for asking for a donation to, quote, take out activist DeRay McKesson. If you're still wondering what's going on, to take out an activist, that means Charles Johnson, according to his report, was, was collecting donations to assassinate DeRay McKesson, who is a Black Lives Matter activist. Okay? So the article goes on to say, quote, so why was Unsicker sharing a glass of lemonade with him? It's not clear, but she did seem to take pride in the association, tweeting that she'd upset St. Louis Twitter by going very public with the fact that she is, quote, friends with some of their boogeymen, end quote, and later in the same thread, posting an unsolicited photo of herself with Johnson. Okay? And then here on her Twitter account, ask Sarah Unsicker, ask Sarah Unsicker, quote, what happened on St. Louis Twitter this weekend? Four parts followed by examples. One, I exposed how easy it is to change the discussion on here and how some of that can be manipulated by foreign bots. I went very, two, I went very public that I'm friends with some of their boogeymen. Okay. Let's see. We lost part of it. Okay. Here's the thing. Um, then she also tweeted with her, her friendship. Um, there's a second tweet, quote, the second tweet cited Unsicker's friendship with Eric Garland, a conspiracy-minded local with a huge Twitter file following, and then invoked Johnson. She wrote, quote, people here don't like that I'm friends with Eric Garland. They really don't like that we meet with Johnson. Thought I, uh, Johnson thought one of her basil lemonade. Yeah, okay, it's the same thing. Um, once again, Holocaust denier. Now, it's, it's so absurd because the Nazis filmed everything. They kept meticulous records. They were proud of what they had done. You know, they, there wasn't any detective work needed to do to prove what the Nazis, to prove the genocide they had committed because they took such good records. It's right there. Now, Unziker has since left the Attorney General office. There are calls for her to resign. She may even be facing expulsion. I don't know yet. Um, but again, this is something where this woman, she is a licensed attorney. She is an alum of the Washington University Law School, one of the better law schools. There is no excuse for her. She knew what she was doing. So for that and so many other reasons, Sarah Unsicker is our deplorable of the week. <laughs> Sarah Unsicker, what a bitch. I know you're not supposed to say the B word, but, you know. And I guess I was wrong to say bitch because, let's face it, that insults all other female dogs. Why insult them? All right. Okay, let's move on. Okay, rolling down here. Hmm. Now let's move on to our Jackass of the Week. We're almost done today. Told you to be a short show. Welcome to CNN's Jackass of the Week Awards. Rayon, Rayon. Okay, this week, our Jackass of the Week 
<clears throat> it's somebody, again, that should know better. All these people are attorneys. You think they would pay attention, but I guess they think the public's so stupid we'll never catch it. Our jackass of the week is House Speaker Mike Johnson. Apparently, Mike Johnson, this is documented by NBCNews.com, and this article ran December 5th by Ryan J. Riley. Uh, the headline reads, Speaker Mike Johnson says he's blurring January 6th footage, but writers don't get charged. According to Johnson, quote, we don't want them to be retaliated against or to be charged by the DOJ, end quote. Okay, there's so many problems with this. Um, and then he went on to say, quote, we want the American people to draw their own conclusions. I don't think partisan elected officials in Washington should present a narrative and expect that it should be seen as the ultimate truth. Okay, none of that matters. And Johnson knows it. Bottom line is this. He admitted to authorizing, blurring the faces. These, these were images that were sent in by Americans all over the country to catch the insurrectionists and to bring them to justice. He admitted, Johnson admitted on national TV that he ordered their faces be blurred to evade prosecution. Okay, here's the thing. Mike Johnson just admitted to the federal crimes of one, obstruction of justice, and two, evidence tampering. That's it. That's all it is. And for that, Mike Johnson is TNN Jackass of the Week for profound jackassery beyond comprehension. Gray on, gray on. Okay. <clears throat> so that's what we're dealing with right now. So now we're going to move ahead here. And, and, you know, here, Mike Johnson is a licensed attorney. In fact, he considers himself to be a constitutional scholar. But this was so stupid, it was beyond belief. Just was. Um, keep in mind, we are going to have a Christmas Eve show. We're going to be talking about the Krampus and poking fun at a lot of people. Truth be told, it's going to definitely be more humorous. Um, before New Year's, we will have our annual lead-up to our Jackass of the Year Award. Keep tuned. We're also experimenting with a new, um, a new format. We're just basically an hour or a little over an hour because it seems to work a little better and my voice doesn't give out as easily. So stay, uh, stay uh, tuned. Now, um, one other thing here. If you're interested in reading where I publish, uh, I can let you know that this past week I published another article both in Nation of Change, which is my publishing home right now, as well as Eurasia Review. So it's both national and international. Okay. And this one, it kind of deals with the Israeli-Hamas situation, but a bit more nuanced. Okay. It deals with the university professors and their asinine explanations. The headline reads, harassment and assault of Jewish college students isn't free speech, and it's not nuanced criminal. And then it goes on to say, excuses made by university presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT represent criminal negligence of, ju of duty. So why are the presidents of top IVs offering such pitifully inadequate excuses? Perhaps it has more to do with foreign gifts to their endowments. 
and I go into some real length here in terms of the idea of criminal assault versus free speech. Fighting words is all there. I cite the Legal Information Institute out of Cornell Law School. I talk about the way students are being targeted as well. Um, and I, I guess what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the, um, the conclusion, okay? There we go. This is from my article in case you're interested. This is the conclusion to my article. Quote, the war between Hamas and Israel has devolved into a war on children and other civilians. Human rights violations witnessed during this conflict are nothing short of evil. Before anything else proceeds, we must save the children, all the children. It is due to this shameful reality that the war on civilians must come to an immediate and enduring ceasefire in order to deliver critical humanitarian aid concurrent with the release of all American and Israeli hostages. This is the most bitter of blood feuds. Denying the fact is denying reality. That being said, irresponsible anti-Semitic rhetoric coming from politicians, academics, and activist groups is just as illegitimate as the hateful Islamophobic rhetoric after 9-11. That is the larger story. The more immediate story lies in the systemic criminal negligence and civil rights violations on college campuses when students are attacked by alleged activist groups. Today, the activist flavor du jour's favorite target happens to be Jewish students, regardless of political identity or sympathy. In past years, these same universities collectively disregarded how female students were harassed and raped. The deeper issue here is systemic inequality on college campuses, where legacy admissions for the children of the rich and powerful are granted an academic and social blank check to be used as cover for multiple transgressions. The solution lies in enforcing the laws on the books. The Ivies pushed the free speech bromide while the actual issue remains federal civil rights violations. But Ivy League apologists can continue to promote this empty argument. A prime example of such a baseless argument hails from rhetoric academician and attorney Lean Greenkey at Syracuse University. She offered a skewed and inaccurate view of hate speech. To quote Greenkey, quote, hyperbolic hate speech, even speech that endorses genocide or calls for forced racial and ethnic division, cannot be criminally prosecuted by states or the federal government. Those words might offend and frighten, but they are often part and parcel of emotionally charged political speech, end quote. Professor Greenkey is correct about the few specific cases cited in her argument. That being said, none of those cases involve direct verbal threats such as, quote, kill all the Jews, coming from a mob aimed at individuals attempting to walk to class or shrieking outside a, a Jewish dormitory. Her argument is patently disingenuous as she ignored the clear and imminent danger on these campuses. The threat coming from crowds outnumbering and targeting Jewish students in the form of a mob does constitute criminal assault. Tolerating, quote, hyperbolic hate speech that, quote, endorses genocide, end quote, is exactly the same, is exactly the type of activities that the civil rights law sought to curtail and balance against free speech claims. There's a significant difference between complicity and implied guilt by association, the latter being nothing more than a logical fallacy based on the preferred bigotry of the day. An example of this fallacy is the following, quote, we cannot have educational reform that my opponent calls for because Dr. Corrupt has also mentioned this kind of educational reform, end quote. 
Today, guilt by association is applied in a wholesale manner against all Jews. We are called complicit because we also assert our constitutional and human rights. Tomorrow, the same illegitimate attack will be used against anyone daring to question a biased narrative. You would think that highly educated and credentialed professionals like these university presidents would understand this critical concept. University presidents Liz McGill, Claudine Gay, and Sally Kornbluth are right about one detail. It certainly does depend on context, end quote. Please read my article. I think you'll get a lot out of it, okay, as you can tell. This is not anti-Palestinian. This is not pro-war. This is not about anti-free speech. It's about telling the full truth, not just the parts you like. And I stand by it. All right, we're almost done now. And we're going to end with our little musical ditty. Usually we do Randy Rainbow. He didn't, he didn't have one that I thought really applied. So this is the Founders Sing with Don McLean and Founding Fathers. And you will, if you actually get a chance to see the video, you know, each, each one of these stanzas is sung by a, like a moving picture of either Ben Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and so on. And it is very apropos. So with no further ado, the day the democracy died. When that sinking feeling laid us down, we knew if he had his way, we'd all live to curse the day when decency received a fatal blow. Bankruptcy's got no attention, pussy grabbing barely mentioned, promising a great war. He swore to make tax rates fall. I still remember how I tried to have sympathy for his third bride. Something rumbled deep inside the day democracy died. But no, don't. Let democracy die. He's a famous ignoramus, can't tell truth from a lie. And if you wins, we'll kiss the country goodbye. Singing for for anyone but this guy. Vote for anyone but this guy. It's Putin who wants to blame, cause we all know. Lost it by three million strong. And do you believe the shit you said? He didn't buy five talking heads.